Welcome back to Kentucky History and Haunts. I'm Jesse Bartholomew, and today I'm telling you two stories of cruel, cold-blooded murder in neighboring Boyd and Greenup counties in Kentucky. Now, both of these cases do involve child abuse, so listener beware. These stories are sad and difficult to listen to, but they are every bit as much a part of Kentucky history as all my other episodes, and these stories are still relevant, which I'll talk more about at the end. These are the stories of Lillian Patrick and Mary Magdalene Pitts. Boyd County sits along the northeastern border of Kentucky in Appalachia near the Ohio and Big Sandy Rivers. You've probably heard of the Ashland tragedy, which occurred in Boyd County in the 1880s, and I will cover that in a later episode, but today we're talking about a different tragedy one that occurred in that same county just two decades later. This story takes place specifically in Hampton City, a neighborhood in Catlettsburg. A man named John Gibson lived there with his 18-year-old wife and her three-year-old daughter. Now, the three-year-old, Lillian, was not John's biological daughter. She was from a previous marriage. And they also lived with John Gibson's brother, Henry, who was 16, and a newborn baby who was just two weeks old. Dr. J.D. Williams, the city health officer, got an anonymous tip one day in November 1900 that Lillian, John Gibson's stepdaughter, might be suffering from smallpox. So he headed over to the Gibson house, and to his dismay, he found that this young girl was dying, but not from smallpox. Lillian's back was broken, It was obvious that she had been burned repeatedly, and the timetable was discouraging because some of the burns appeared to be brand new, while others were almost healed. These burn marks were all over her body, and some of them were extremely severe. And it was at that moment that the doctor looked up and also took note of a red-hot poker on the hearth. It's worth noting here that during this visit, Mrs. Gibson and Mr. Gibson's brother Henry were there, but Mr. Gibson was not home. John had actually left. As soon as he saw the doctor pull up, he left without his hat or his coat. He just took off, and things escalated quickly from there. Dr. Williams was quickly putting two and two together, and he went to notify the coroner and chief of police, but it was too late. John Gibson was on the run. And in an effort to create a distraction, he'd actually set fire to a home a few doors down from his own, hoping that that would just distract the police and give them a more immediate uh, course of action. So anyway, 30 men were dispatched to find him, and that number increased drastically by the next morning. And there was concern because the public had caught on to what happened, and they were furious to hear about what John had done to his stepdaughter Lillian. So it became a race as to who could catch him first, the police or an angry lynch mob. Lillian had passed away during this time, and so while the search went on, the family held a quiet funeral for her. Days went by. There were sightings of him here and there, but no capture. He was from Floyd County, so they set up a search for him there as well, but with no luck. There was excitement on December 1st when a rumor spread that he'd been caught. 
And when a huge group of people went to the jail to see for themselves, there was a wave of disappointment when the rumor turned out to be false. And then the very next day, there was a massive blunder when Gibson was actually caught in nearby Rush, Kentucky. But when the police department started arguing over who should get their reward money for his capture, he managed to escape. And just like in the case of Joseph Wendling and the murder of Alma Kellner, lookalikes were arrested in Maysville, Valley View, and even Cordon, Indiana. Now at first, Mrs. Gibson and Henry Gibson, John's younger brother, were not talking to police at all. They were reportedly so terrified that if they spoke up, John would do to them what he did to Lillian. Later, though, Henry did talk to a reporter and told them that on the last morning before Lillian died, John had burned her and thrown her on the floor and said, quote, Now I guess you'll die. Days passed, and there were more sightings of Gibson. He was seen toting three guns as he had breakfast one Sunday morning at his friend Henry Haywood's house in Carter County. Multiple witnesses saw him in this area, hanging around some abandoned coal mines, and authorities closed in on him. And then, on December 5th, a citizen's arrest was made by Griffith and John Davis, and the police hurried to get him home, fearing he would escape again. John Gibson was taken to a jail in Maysville, but the police intentionally spread the word that he was taken to Ashland because they feared if an angry crowd showed up where he really was, they wouldn't be able to keep them from killing him before he could go to trial. And they were probably right to do this because 300 people did in fact show up at the Ashland jail. Once in custody, he was apparently very cooperative at first and ready to talk. The Courier-Journal reported, quote, Someone must have told him he was talking too much, for later in the morning he lost the use of his tongue, and since then will hardly let a caller get a glimpse of him, much less have any conversation. When asked why he fled, when the doctor came to examine Lillian, he said he didn't run out of guilt, but because he knew he was going to get blamed and he wanted to go into hiding until his name was cleared. Gibson went to trial in Catlettsburg in January of 1901. The county prosecutor, Frank Bruning, was very confident that he would have Gibson convicted of first-degree murder. Henry Gibson testified that he had witnessed his brother, John, burning Lillian with a hot poker and hitting her on the head with firewood. When asked why he didn't say something to someone, he simply stated that John warned him that if he did, he would kill him. When John took the stand in his own defense, he claimed that it was his wife and his brother who abused Lillian, not him. And then he changed his story about why he fled. Now he claimed it was because he was afraid of catching smallpox from Lillian, which wasn't a strong excuse since it was known now that Lillian never even had smallpox. On February 1st, to the surprise of many, 
John Gibson was found guilty, but instead of the death penalty, he was sentenced to life in prison. Here are some excerpts from the Courier-Journal's reports on this. Quote, A murmur of disapproval of the verdict could be heard from the crowd which thronged the courtroom. End quote, the punishment of death would have been inevitably followed had it not been for that sentiment which encourages governors to refuse to sign the death sentence for, of murderers. Few juries can be got together on which there are not two or three men of such wavering convictions as hardly to be persuaded to obey the plain letter of the law in any case. When he was thrown in prison, the sheriff remarked that he was lucky he didn't get lynched first, to which Gibson replied, quote, It takes nerve to lynch a man, and the people of Catlettsburg have not got it. While this may have been the end of Lillian's story, it was not the end for this particular area in eastern Kentucky. Greenup County is the very next county over from Boyd. It too sits on the Kentucky border in Appalachia and its history is also tainted by a horrible and infamous case of child abuse. Our second story starts in 1927, when two boys from a family living nearby showed up at the home of Dr. George K. Woods in the late night hours of December 29th. When he answered the door, the two boys, children of Robert Pitts and Lucy Walker Green, told him that their sister Mary was dead. So he followed them back to their home where they saw a small lifeless body covered in a sheet outside. And Marie B. Frazier, the family housekeeper, was standing nearby displaying a complete lack of emotion. Mary Magdalene Pitts was three years old at the time of her death, just like Lillian. She was covered in injuries. Her body was badly bruised and burned, and she had a hole in her head. At the time Dr. Woods arrived, it appeared she'd been dead for hours already, and the next part is so strange. So the doctor turned to the housekeeper, Marie Frazier, and asked her what happened. And she looked at him and said with a blank expression, quote, I don't know, but she wanted water a lot. And the next morning when police and the coroner showed up and arrested her, she said, quote, she wanted water all the time. We did all we could to save her. And then she said, quote, I'll kill that coroner before we get to Greenup. So Marie may have been a bit off her rocker. Now, Robert H. Pitts, Mary's father, was arrested just a few days later. It was already common knowledge that Mr. Pitts was a big believer in corporal punishment and that he often used switches, pokers, razors, or, quote, whatever blunt objects happened to be handy to punish his children. So on Mary's death certificate, the coroner had written, quote, the cause of death was as follows. Probably shock resulting from burns, bruises, cuts, administered by father and housekeeper Marie Frazier. Probably homicide, contributory cause, exposure to cold without proper clothing. And the extent of the findings in her autopsy is just sickening. It revealed, among other things, she'd suffered a hard blow to the kidney and had been forced to eat pepper 
which could explain why she was begging for water. And in fact, there were so many injuries, that's why the coroner was hesitant to land on one specific cause of death at all. Now, the two they had in custody were denied bond, and they had to be moved to a jail in Winchester, Kentucky, after very angry mobs made their current situation too risky, just like in the other story. Now, while awaiting trial, Robert and Marie started giving multiple different accounts of what happened, each always blaming the other. Marie told reporters that she held Mary in her arms as she died from a beating by her father, while Robert told reporters that Mary was already dead when he got home, so it couldn't possibly have been him. So get ready for a lot of back and forth. Now, the Clark County Jailer found this written confession, accusation, in one of Robert's pockets. And it was bizarre. And it even looked like more than one person had actually contributed to writing it, which is interesting. Now, I'm not going to go into detail about what it said Murray did to this poor little girl, but believe me that it was awful and it made Murray look like an absolute monster. And when asked why Robert never defended Mary from this abuse by the housekeeper, he said that he in fact did. He said that he had slapped and whipped Marie to give her a taste of her own medicine, but that's contradictory to the speculation about their relationship. See, according to the Lexington Herald, one of the paragraphs in this confession talked about, quote, intimate relations between Pitts and the Fraser woman. So there actually is more to the story. Now, Marie Fraser responded to this confession letter by saying that she was actually this child's friend and, quote, protector. She said that Mary's body had recent burns on them when she was found dead because her dress had somehow caught fire. And she also said that Robert Pitts had poisoned Mary with a concoction that caused her to die of thirst. This went on and on, the two writing and rewriting confessions and accusations and various stories of what happened, defending themselves and blaming the other. There was also a note found among Robert's possessions that was a list of items, and I'll read you the contents of that list now. Three yards bleach, two yards lace, three yards white veil, two yards narrow lace, three yards pale blue ribbon, white stockings and white slippers, spool with thread, plain black hose, three yards to cover casket, eight yards lace two inches wide, two boxes of carpet tacks, candles. So obviously supplies for a burial for this little girl. So it's worth noting here, I think, that those sons of Roberts are heroes because they were planning on burying this little girl in a casket in the yard, and no one would have ever seen what they'd done to her. But luckily, those boys got the doctor to the scene before they could get away with it. You might be wondering, where was the mother during all of this? Because I certainly was. Mary's mother was Lucy Walker Green, 
and she was sometimes referred to in the press as Mrs. Pitts, but they'd never legally married. So Lucy was found living on a houseboat on the Kentucky River with her brother-in-law. And it turns out she had left Robert Pitts in June of 1927 when she said she just couldn't take any more of his abuse. And reporters questioned, of course, why hadn't she taken Mary with her? And she said she tried, but when she did, Robert fired gunshots at her, so she had to leave Mary with him. Meanwhile, on January 13th, new confessions from Marie and Robert were released to the public. And again, they both maintained their innocence. This time, Marie claimed that Robert had hit Mary in the head with a poker the night before she passed away. And Robert provided a list of 24 men who he claimed he knew had been intimate with Marie, who he also noted he found unattractive. And he was implying here that any one of those men could be an accomplice or wholly responsible for his daughter's murder, which really doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Also, he refers to Marie as baby in a lot of his letters to her, so just not buying it. A little bit later, he changed his story again, and this time he said, yeah, I was involved a little bit, but she drugged me. Marie drugged me, so I wasn't in my right state of mind. And you know, at first, when all of this went down, the media was just eating it up, hanging on their every word, because, I mean, come on, it was making for a great story, but at this point, they're exhausted. You know, they're not buying it, nobody's buying it, and basically, they're like, all right, let us know when you're ready to tell the truth. So, the back-and-forth accusations kind of died down, and then Pitts did come out and admit that he, on occasion, beat his daughter but never with anything larger than a switch, quote, about 15 inches long and not more than three at a time. So now he'd admitted, yeah, I abused my kid, but only a little. But at least at that point, we're getting a little closer to the truth. Marie and Robert were taken back to Greenup County on January 22nd, where they were indicted by a grand jury. But for their safety, as well as to try to find a less biased jury, their trial was moved to neighboring Lewis County. Marie was tried first on leap year, February 29, 1928. She pled guilty against her counsel's advice, hoping to avoid the death penalty. And she was found guilty on March 1st. She was escorted out of the courtroom just as Robert was escorted in. And he pled not guilty. And almost immediately, Marie was brought back in to testify against him. And what she said on the stand was corroborated by Robert's sons. During her testimony, Marie told the court that what killed Mary specifically was a blow to the head from that poker and they actually had the poker in evidence so it was presented to the jury and they could even see where it was bent a little bit suggesting that it had hit something with great force and when Robert took the stand he repeated that Marie was the murderer not him but he had a really hard time explaining why he hadn't called anyone 
when he came home on December 29th and found his daughter dead. And like I said, Robert's sons both testified, and they said that they had seen both Robert and Marie abuse their half-sister Mary, quote, thoroughly and often. Both Robert Pitts and Marie Fraser were found guilty as charged and received life sentences. But here's the crazy part. Robert Pitts was freed after serving only 13 years, and Marie Fraser was also paroled. So they each moved to different states and got a chance to start new lives. But instead of ending the story with that frustrating bit of information, I'm going to tell you about Mary's funeral. This next paragraph is a direct quote from the book Cruelly Murdered, The Murder of Mary Magdalene Pitts and Other Kentucky True Crime Stories by Kevin McQueen. Quote, at least 5,000 people, some say it was closer to 10,000, paid their respects at the LG staff funeral home where Mary's body lay in state for several days. Mourners came from as far away as Ohio, Virginia, West Virginia, Indiana, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Michigan, and Illinois to pay tribute to the small victim. Her funeral was held on January 15th, and so many people were present that services had to be held on the courthouse lawn. Even newsreel cameramen were present. Thousands solemnly passed the open casket, which was placed in a bandstand, to gaze for the last time upon the girl's calm features. In a searingly poignant touch, she held her only doll. At the end of the day, a group of small girls acted as her pallbearers at Riverview Cemetery. One account described the scene. Other children carried the array of floral tributes. Hundreds followed the line of march. Mary Magdalene, who knew only hardship and suffering, was born to her grave like a modern Cinderella. Citizens purchased a burial plot and later erected a statue of a small angel. The base read, Cruelly Murdered. According to the CDC, Heightened stress, school closures, loss of income, and social isolation resulting from the coronavirus pandemic have increased the risk for child abuse and neglect. If you suspect a child is being abused or neglected, please contact the Kentucky Statewide Child Abuse Hotline number at 1-877-597-2331 to make a report. You can stay anonymous and still have your report investigated. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.